0: Now, as we enter uh, week 20 of our series in the book of Hebrews, week 20, uh, I thought it might make sense to kick things off by seeing if we can remember why on earth the book of Hebrews was written in the first place. So help me out here. Why was the book of Hebrews written? Any ideas? Hopefully there'll be some, or else we'll have to rewind to week one and start all over again, and I'm sure you don't want that. Why is it written? some of the reasons? Aha, ah, ha, yes. Uh, see, we're doing all we can to help you, to express that Jesus is greater. Yes. Any other reasons? Why did these people need to know that Jesus is greater? That's right, facing persecution, uh, opposition. It's like in every single chapter, we've seen how the writer gives his readers something that helps them face the opposition, the persecution, uh, the, the brutal realities of life in the real world. But that helps them kind of stand strong and solid uh, and unshakable. So I'm, I'm keeping going now because I wasn't getting any help from, other than the, from, from over here. And helping them to, to stand strong and solid when everything around them is shaking and falling apart. That's why the book was written. Now, just to warn you, as we enter the final chapter now, chapter 13, I've got to say up front, it's going to seem slightly different to the rest of the book. As we read through it, it's pretty much going to feel like a random to-do list. And on the surface, at least, it doesn't seem to match the depth and the power of the previous 12 chapters. But what I want to show you this week Uh, and the next couple of times I preach through August as well, is that this chapter is every bit as profound, if not even more so, than everything that has gone before. Now, just to pick up where we left off last time, chapter 12 ends with these words. Verse 28, since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a devouring fire. It's like at the very heart, the very core, the very center of the universe is this exploding love and joy that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have as they each defer to, glorify, center upon, rejoice in, and adore the others. And that is what every single one of us is designed for and invited into. every human being is built, wired, designed to stand in the very presence of God. Not centering on ourselves, but deferring to, glorifying, rejoicing in, and adoring the glory of God above all else. The problem is, as we saw last time, God is holy. And so as chapter 12 explains in quite some detail, when under the old covenant system, the the presence of God came down like on Mount Sinai, for example, you, you couldn't get anywhere close. The presence of God was terrifying. It was traumatic. It was fatal if you touched it directly. All of which explains the Numerous rituals and sacrifices that had to be performed back in the Old Testament. It's like the only way to approach the terrifying presence of God was to do everything just right. But as Rich showed us so helpfully last time round, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the presence of God, that which used to be terrifying... And fatal and traumatic, the presence of God can now come not just close, but right into our lives. Now, in light of all of that, it's kind of fitting, I think, that we would want to be thankful and would want to please God by worshipping Him. But what does it really mean for us to worship God, as it says here, with holy fear, and awe. What on earth does acceptable worship to God actually look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because chapter 13 gives us the answer. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated, as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Give honour to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good things that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So, please, don't be attracted by strange new ideas, because your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food which don't help those who follow them. So, here is how you go about worshipping God acceptably with holy fear and awe. Basically, love one another as brothers and sisters entertain strangers. Open your life to prisoners. Honor marriage. Be generous with your money. Follow the example of your leaders. In other words, the way we worship God and experience more of His glorious presence in our lives isn't through our perfect performance it's not through rituals or observing various laws. It's primarily through deep participation in the radically new communal practices of people who together have experienced the grace of God. According to Hebrews 13, that is how we worship and that is how we experience more of the presence of God. Or to put it in another way, If you just trundle along here for a service on a Sunday, but you're not in your day-to-day life part of a deep, intimate community with other people who have experienced, like you, the grace of God, you are neither fully worshipping God nor properly experiencing the devouring fire and power and presence of God as He intends. That is the message of this passage. You don't worship just by coming to services and singing songs. You worship by being deeply, integrally involved in radical Christian community. And so, what I want to do at the time that remains this morning is, first of all, look at just a couple of the characteristics of this kind of community, and then secondly, very quickly, Look at where the power comes from to live like this. Let's start with some of the characteristics of Christian community as laid out in this passage. The first thing we see is that we are a close-knit family. See that straight away in verse 1. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. You know, I think we kind of let those words wash over us, and a lot of the time we don't see how incredibly profound this is. Every other person who has experienced the grace of God in Christ is your brother or your sister. Let me just have a quick look around the room. Look around people around you. It's okay, you can do that eyeball a few people. These are your brothers and sisters. This is your family. Let's just think of some of the implications of this for a moment or two. What what do you think, bit more audience participation, just so you can engage, what do you think it means to keep loving each other as brothers and sisters? Practically, what does this mean? What does it look like? What are some of the implications? Shout them out. Helping each other, absolutely. Forgiving, forgiving other people, yes. Loving them even when you don't like them spoken as someone with experience by the sound of it. (laughs) Yeah, time together, yeah. Sharing your toys, yeah. Again, spoken like a man with experience. (laughs) Anything else? Building each other up, encouraging one another, because that's what brothers and sisters always do. Yep. (laughs) Supporting each other. Yeah, absolutely. Celebrating together. It's mourning together as well. Kind of all of life. Here are a few things I thought of. I think it speaks of our unconditional commitment to one another. Hands up, how many of you have got a brother or a sister? Okay, the majority of people in the room. Not everyone, but the majority. How many of you are really similar to your brothers or sisters? Okay, how many are really different from your brothers or sisters? Probably more differences than similarities. How many of you have ever had a fight or have fallen out at some point with a brother or a sister? Okay, pretty much everyone in the room. How many of you, through all of this, feel a bond or a closeness or an obligation to your brother or sister? Yeah. it's spite of all of the fights that you have had, all the disagreements you've had over the years, at the end of the day, they're still your brother. They're still your sister, aren't they? No, no matter how Weird, how irritating, no matter how different or annoying they are, even if they're the kind of people you would never hang out with or never want to be with otherwise, it's like there's this family bond, there's this obligation, they're still your flesh and blood. And that is how it's to be with your brothers and sisters in the church family. It speaks of unconditional commitment. Secondly, in my mind, it speaks of a transparency and reality in the way that we relate together. Like, your siblings know what you're really like, don't they? They know what you look like first thing in the morning, and when you're under pressure, and when you're stressed, they know what you are, they know who you are. It's like, there's no point... Pretending or putting on a show. There's transparency and reality. Thirdly, there are also implications for, as some people were suggesting, how we use our money and our toys. A guy called Lucian of Samosota, who is this pagan Greek intellectual, he wrote about what in his mind was the scandalous behavior of the Christians of his day towards one another. Listen to this. He says, their founder, Jesus persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, as a result, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. It's like looking in from the outside, it was clear that these Christians considered themselves brothers and sisters. How? because they'd willingly given up their privacy and the right to use their possessions, their toys, the way they want. Because that's what it's like in family. Brothers and sisters share the same home. They one day share the same inheritance. They have a claim on your wallet. They have a claim on your resources. They have a claim on your living space. You see what I mean about this being pretty radical? No matter what their race, no matter what their background or their culture, no matter how different they are, if they know and love Jesus, they are your brother. They are your sister. Which means there's unconditional commitment, there's transparency, there's sharing. And this goes deep. This isn't just like a hobby on the side. This isn't merely a club that you attend. This is the single most shaping influence possible in your life. I mean, think about it. If you're a member of a club, you relate around a single point of interest. It's all quite narrow, isn't it? For example, uh, any train spotters here? No train spotters. Okay, I'm safe to give this illustration. If you're part of a train spotting club, and one of the members starts advising you on the intricacies of your private life. Like, I don't know why you're dating her. She's no good for you. You're probably going to turn around and say, excuse me, we're here to talk about trains. Mind your own business. But in a family, all points of your life connect with all points of theirs. You eat together. You play together, you argue together, you open up together about your problems, you share living space, you share resources, you share decisions. That's what family life is like and it can't help but shape you. Like, I wouldn't be the person I am today without my family. It's like, our individual personalities draw out different things in each other. I literally would be a different man standing here if I wasn't married to Helen. And I think this happens in other relationships too, as Hannah Anderson puts it. Human community is dynamic in ways we don't always recognise. It's alive and it's beautiful. Here's my point. If you merely come along here to a service every Sunday, I don't know, perhaps you are drawn by the coffee or by the kids' work or you like the teaching or the style of worship. You you come along regularly, but you don't give up your privacy. You you don't become accountable. You you don't actually get into deep relationships where your personal lives are connected to other people, other brothers and sisters, then you are merely part of a Christian club. You're not part of a Christian community or family, and you're not going to be shaped anywhere near as much as you think. You know, from time to time, I hear people say that The preaching here at Church Central is inspiring or challenging. And that's all well and good. I'm always up for a bit of encouragement. But if you're not part of a community where you are pounding this truth into one another, and together you're grappling with the implications of how does this apply in real life, and you're holding each other to account, and you're working through your differences at the same time, then you're not really learning a whole lot. I tell you, unless you are relating to other brothers and sisters at a family level, the empowering presence of God isn't fully working in and through you. So the first characteristic of Christian community is it's a close-knit family. Second thing, just want to flag up, it's also an incredibly open community. Now if you think about it, this is quite surprising, isn't it? Because when you think of community where there is real belonging, that there's real connection and closeness and accountability, those communities tend to be pretty hard to break into, don't they? They they tend to be a bit cliquey. They're not all that open to others. But that is not how it is with the church. Or at least that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a community that is incredibly close-knit and incredibly open at the same time. Now, if we keep moving through the passage... I think we're going to see this highlighted by at least a couple of pretty startling balances. First one is particularly counterintuitive. Verse one, we've seen this already, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. I think we've explored that one a bit. Then it says in verse two, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Verse one says, work like crazy at loving the insiders. Loving the people you know in the church. Loving the people who share your same beliefs. Verse two says, make sure you work incredibly hard at loving outsiders. Loving people who aren't like you. People you don't know. People you might naturally be slightly suspicious of. It it implies opening your home. Opening your wallet opening your resources, sharing your toys with people who otherwise you would never spend any time with. Now back then, everything was all about something called the patronage system. It was all about doing things for other people so that they then owed you. So you would invite people into your home, but only people whose homes you wanted to get into. It's like you do things for people who could then maybe open doors for you, who could get you into circles that you desperately wanted to get into. That's how things kind of worked back then. And in many respects, that's how things still work in our culture today, but not in this community, not in the church. You're supposed to open up to people even when there is no certainty that they can give you anything back. You're supposed to open up to the stranger. You're supposed to open up to the person who's different, the newcomer, the person you're really not so sure about. In other words, this isn't a community where you have to, in some way, prove yourself before people are even warm and friendly to you. Not at all. It's very different here. But notice what it then says. It says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. I don't know what that's probably a reference to. Abraham, yes, yeah, right. It's probably a reference to Genesis 18 when Abraham invited three strangers into his home or into his tent, and they turned out to be angels. So here's how Christian community is supposed to work. You you don't just love those who you know will be able to repay you. You you don't just inconvenience yourself or put yourself out for the cool people or the wealthy people or or for people who you think can help you get ahead or be more popular. You, you, You don't base your relationships with others on what is in it for you. But here's the thing. If, and really only if, you base your relationships on sacrificial service, you'll end up finding a lot of your own personal needs getting met in the process. It's like angels come into your life. Sometimes, literal angels. Other times, it'll be people who enrich your life and bless you in completely unexpected ways. But it's only when you're looking for strangers that you find the angels. It's only when you're reaching out selflessly to people who can't help you that you'll find you have all the help you ever need. That's the first balance. There's another balance here, which is every bit as amazing I think shows you something of the unique countercultural patterns of this Christian community. Verse three says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And verse four says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. So verse 3 says, find the people, hunt down, look for, search for the people who are victims of injustice and oppression and care deeply about that. And then verse 4 says, no sex outside marriage. Now, is this twin focus of love for the poor, love for those in need, and sexual purity that made the first church so incredibly distinctive from the culture around it. As a guy called Augustine put it, I love this quote, people in the world are promiscuous with their beds and stingy with their money. Christians are stingy with their beds, but promiscuous with their money. Now look, some people love the poor, but don't seem to care about holiness. Others love family values and purity, but don't seem to care a whole lot about the poor. True followers of Jesus, always and everywhere, care deeply about both. Listen, the gospel completely changes the way you think about and use sex and money. According to the Bible, if you're making money, it's a gift from God. It's not ultimately yours. It's not primarily for your own individual selfish happiness. It's ultimately for the purpose of building up community, building up, encouraging, supporting people who are weaker, who have less, strengthening in some way, like the whole social... Fabric Bible also says sex is for building community. you do not have sex with somebody who is not first willing to commit himself or herself exclusively to you for the rest of their life. and that commitment is called marriage. Again it's all about community it's all about family. The world says Your money is nobody else's but yours. You've earned it. You have a right to it. And your sexuality belongs to you. It's for your own personal fulfillment. You should be able to be free to do what you want with it. But for those of us who have experienced the radical unselfishness of Jesus in making a way for us to be saved... I think we're going to see things very differently. We're completely set free from the selfish individualism that so characterizes the world around us. The question is, are we going to unthinkingly allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, or are we going to allow the gospel to shape us into a radical new kind of community? unlike anything else the world has ever seen. Don't know about you? I'm going to hunt down the latter. I want to be part of that kind of community, that counter-cultural, gospel-centred community. Which begs the question, where then do we get the power to create a community like this? A community that's both close-knit and at the same time very open to outsiders, a community that's completely non-judgmental and yet at the same time ferociously holy. Where in the world do we get the power for something like that? Well, the answer's in the last part of the passage we read. You can see it at the very end. Verse seven says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. What's that? That's the gospel. What's the gospel? It's there in verse 9. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. In other words, you are saved by grace, not by your works, not by your performance. If you really want to see how that is the dynamic for the creation of this unique new community, take a look at what it says in verse 5. It says, don't love money, i looked at that already. Be satisfied with what you have. And here's the reason why. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. All this is saying is, there is something that happens on the inside. Something that happens internally to a believer in Jesus that frees us from the love of or worry about money and stuff. Listen, there is a way that we can be satisfied just with what we have so that we're not anxious about what we have or haven't got. So that having things is no longer all that important for our security, our comfort, our sense of worth. It's like because money is no longer so emotionally significant to us, it becomes something we can then use generously and give away to build up and strengthen community. And the key to all of this is believing God when he says, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. You know, some of you are so frightened about being alone. So frightened that you're doing things you know you shouldn't do. You're violating your conscience. Perhaps you're staying in relationships you know are no good because you're so afraid of being alone. Others of you, you're not doing anything like that, but you're still freaking out over being alone. A lot of the rest of you are saying, well, no, this doesn't relate to me. I'm feeling pretty confident here. I'm not alone. Uh, I have a great spouse, I have wonderful friends, I've got everything I want right now. At the end of the day, you are all wrong. Because unless God is someone you know intimately, you are absolutely alone. You see, like it or not, and without wishing to be unduly negative right now, everyone else will fail you at some point. The best friends you have will fail you. The best spouse will let you down. Best parents will fail you in some way. But you think, about that? that's a bit harsh. <laughs> I mean, what are you talking about here? Well, first of all, a lot of them will fail you because of their flaws, because of their weaknesses. But they simply will not be able to stand up under the weight of the expectation you place on them. But more than that, that wishing to be morbid, they will either all die on you or you'll die before them. Do you know what? At the point of death, ultimately in a deep way, you will face it alone. Your spouse, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, they won't be able to walk it for you. Only God can be there. This means if you don't have God at the core, at the very center of your life, ultimately you are going to be alone no matter what you think. But if you have God, you are never alone. He says, I will never fail you, I will never, ever abandon you. You say, Well, that's wonderful if only I could believe that. How can I know that? Here's how you can know it. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned. Jesus experienced the very opposite of verse 5 here. In fact, almost seems to contradict verse 5, because on the cross, remember Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's why. I just said, if God's not at the center of your life, then you're alone. But Jesus took that aloneness, he paid the penalty for it so God could turn around and say to us, look, I will now never ever abandon you. It says in Ephesians 2 that we once were strangers, but God has now brought us in. If you like, we have received God's hospitality We were strangers. We were outsiders. We had absolutely nothing that God needed, but God in his kindness has brought us in. How? Because of the cosmic homelessness of Jesus. There's this one occasion in the Gospels, you might remember it, where Jesus said, look, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, speaking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus literally lost his home so that we could be invited in to enjoy God's hospitality forever. And to the degree that you see Jesus taking your cosmic aloneness for you, to the degree that you sense that affirmation on your life, that joy that knowledge, that understanding, that experience, he'll never now fail you or abandon you. To that degree, you get liberated. You get the freedom to give away your money, your stuff, your toys, everything. To that degree, you have the freedom to start reaching out to other people, not calculating, not manipulative, Not saying I'd like to be with that person because if I was with that person, that person would make me feel better about myself. But I I don't want to hang out with these people. These people just make me feel worse about myself. You don't need to think like that anymore. Because now you are part of a community that is set free. A community that's liberated. Liberated, free, based on the radical hospitality of God. Listen. Listen if we have received God's hospitality, it surely follows that we'll also be vehicles for that hospitality. That The more we are hospitable to others, to our brothers and sisters in the church and to our neighbours outside the church, the more we open our lives, our wallets, our resources, our hearts, our secrets, our privacy, the more we open up to other people the more we'll get to experience the power and the presence of God in our lives. And through it all, I think that is what it means to be truly thankful and to please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. The question is, practically speaking, how do we work this out in a place like this? And so what I want you to do in the next five minutes and then we're done, if it's not too awkward, even if it's slightly awkward, please do it anyway, Uh, I'd like you to turn around to the the people around you, maybe kind of threes or fours, or if you want to reach out to to someone who you don't know, kind of include them in as well. Don't want anyone being left out, that would slightly undermine the message I've been trying to communicate. So be sensitive to others. Don't just try and grab the cool people that you want to be with or the people you really know for a kind of intimate time together. Be drawing other people in. Two questions I'd like you to look at. What practical steps could you take to apply this message? Or to put it another way, what could building community look like for you? Okay, clear on that? Groups of three or four, maybe five at a stretch. Those are the questions. And then we're done.